Hey everyone, just a quick word before we dive into this week's episode of the show. If you follow the show on Instagram, you may well have seen a post that I made regarding the lateness of this episode. Long story short, I was having some health issues that, combined with the general busyness of managing a full-time job, meant that I was unable to deliver the weekly release schedule that I had established. Having now taken a bit of time off from releasing episodes, I'm now going to be aiming to release new episodes of the podcast once a fortnight. If things are going well, then it's very possible that I'll get back into the routine of releasing weekly episodes, but at the moment, I'm happy with committing to, at the very least, releasing episodes fortnightly from now on. That's all. Thanks for the support, and enjoy the episode. Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating and understanding the enduring mysteries of cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty, and as always, I'm your host. If it's your first time tuning into the show, then welcome. Each week we take a look at a particular film, or in this week's case, a television show, and spend some time digging deep into the themes, filmmaking, history, and influence that these films continue to have on us today. This week on the show, we're picking up the story of David Lynch's filmmaking career after we left off at the release of Blue Velvet in 1986, with an in-depth look at the first season of his first foray into the world of television. Renowned as being one of the weirdest primetime television shows of all time, as well as one of the best and most influential, it's a show that continued to compel a captive audience long after its cancellation, eventually leading to a continuation of the story 25 years later. I am of course talking about Twin Peaks. Welcome to Twin Peaks. My name is Margaret Lanterman. I live in Twin Peaks. I am known as the Log Lady. There is a story behind that. There are many stories in Twin Peaks. Some of them are sad, some funny. Some are stories of madness, of violence. Some are ordinary. Yet they all have about them a sense of mystery. The mystery of life. Sometimes the mystery of death. The mystery of the woods. The woods surrounding Twin Peaks. To introduce this story, let me just say it encompasses the all. It is beyond the fire, though few would know that meaning. It is a story of many, but it begins with one. And I knew her. The one leading to the many is Laura Palmer. Laura is the one. Listeners of this show will know that I've already covered a large part of the Twin Peaks story on this podcast. Episode 3 of this show went into great detail unpacking the mysteries of David Lynch's prequel film to the series Fire Walk With Me, and I will say up front that you should most definitely catch up on that episode first before getting into this one. In that episode, I detailed the overall story of how David Lynch and Mark Frost met, how Lynch's agent encouraged him to consider working on a television show in a similar thematic vein to that of the successful Blue Velvet, and the rise and fall of the show as one of the most wildly popular television shows of all time at that point in history during the early 1990s. I'm not going to be repeating much of what I covered in that episode, so do go back and check that one out if you're interested in hearing about how Twin Peaks came into being. This week's episode, however, will be more focused on the mystery itself and unpacking the dark secrets that fill every darkened living room in Twin Peaks. It's also important for me to acknowledge something that has dominated Twin Peaks discussions for the last two or three years, 
Yes, I have seen the 4-hour Twin Peaks Explained video from Twin Perfect on YouTube. And yes, I do think that he makes very compelling arguments. And yes, I did thoroughly enjoy all of that video. But I also think that certain elements of the arguments put forth in that video didn't leave much room for interpretation or any further detective work from the audience. This episode will not be an attempt to explain away every mystery inherent in Twin Peaks, as that exhaustively researched YouTube video does. Rather, I hope this episode will prompt you to ask better questions of the show and of yourself to further enrich your experience of the show. So before we dive in, as always, a quick recap of the narrative of Season 1 of Twin Peaks. The sleepy, rural, midwestern town of Twin Peaks is rocked by the murder of high school senior and homecoming queen, Laura Palmer. She's found by Pete Martell, who is out fishing, floating down the river, naked, wrapped in plastic. A badly injured second girl, Ronette Pulaski, is discovered in a fugue state. FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper is called to investigate, and in his initial examination of the body, he discovers a small piece of paper under the left ring fingernail with the letter R printed on it. Cooper informs the community that Laura's death matches the signature of a killer who murdered another girl in southwestern Washington the previous year, and that evidence indicates that the killer lives in Twin Peaks. The authorities discover through Laura Palmer's diary that she'd been living a double life. She was cheating on her boyfriend, football captain Bobby Briggs, with biker James Hurley, and was prostituting herself with the help of truck driver Leo Johnson and drug dealer Jacques Renault. Laura was also addicted to cocaine, which she obtained by coercing Bobby into doing business with Jacques. Laura's father, attorney Leland Palmer, suffers a nervous breakdown after her death. Laura's best friend Donna Hayward begins a relationship with James, and with the help of Laura's cousin Maddie Ferguson, Donna and James discover that Laura's psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Jacoby, was obsessed with her, but he is proven innocent of the murder. Owner of the Great Northern Hotel, Ben Horn, the richest man in Twin Peaks, plans to destroy the town's lumber mill along with its owner, Josie Packard, and murder his lover, Josie's sister-in-law, Catherine Martell, played by Piper Laurie, so that he can purchase the land at a reduced price and complete a development project that he is calling Ghostwood. Horn's sultry, troubled daughter, Audrey, played by Sherilyn Fenn, becomes infatuated with Agent Cooper and spies on her father for clues in an effort to win over Agent Cooper's affections. Cooper has a dream in which he is approached by a one-armed, otherworldly being who calls himself Mike. Mike says that Laura's murderer is a similar entity, Killer Bob, a feral, denim-clad man with long grey hair. Cooper finds himself decades older with Laura and a dwarf in a red business suit who gives Cooper a number of cryptic clues. The next morning, Cooper tells Truman that if he can decipher the dream, he will know who killed Laura. Cooper and the sheriff's department find the one-armed man from Cooper's dream, who is a travelling shoe salesman named Philip Gerard. Gerard knows a Bob, a veterinarian who treats Renault's pet bird. Cooper interprets these events to mean that Renault is the murderer, and with Truman's help, tracks Renault to One-Eyed Jacks, a brothel owned by Ben Horn across the border in Canada. He lures Renault back onto US soil to arrest him, but Renault is shot while trying to escape, and is hospitalised. Leland, learning that Renault has been arrested, sneaks into the hospital and murders him. The same night, Horn orders Leo to burn down the lumber mill with Catherine trapped inside and has Leo gunned down by Hank Jennings to ensure Leo's silence. Cooper returns to his room following Jacques' arrest and is shot by a masked gunman. Season 1 of Twin Peaks comes to an end. It should come as no surprise to regular listeners of this show that Twin Peaks is massively important for me and is undoubtedly my favourite television show of all time. I arrived at Twin Peaks for the first time when I was about 19 and I only really watched it because of my growing interest in and appreciation of David Lynch as a filmmaker. 
Everything that I read or watched about Lynch as a creative mentioned Twin Peaks as being an essential work, and so I sat down to watch the pilot as someone who doesn't really watch a whole lot of television. By the end of the first season, I was completely hooked in a way that I can't remember ever really being before or after. Twin Peaks possessed me in a way that I had forgotten that stories could. The way that Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone gripped me as a six-year-old, reading through that paperback in a single night, trying to untangle the mysteries buried deep in the grounds of Hogwarts. Or the way that Star Wars, on a beat-up VHS tape on a TV in Bulgaria, introduced me to blockbusters and science fiction. The way that Donnie Darko arrived into my system as a 13-year-old, completely obliterating my expectations of what a film should look like. Twin Peaks spoke to me as an adult in the same way that fantasy, horror and fairy tales spoke to me as a young child through picture books, Roald Dahl, Lemony Snicket and Hans Christian Andersen. It bypassed the rational and intellectual parts of my brain and cut straight to the purest emotional centres of the brain. Fear, confusion, awe and most of all, mystery. This is one of the reasons that I think genre filmmaking is where some of the most vital and important films are made. The language of genre gives the artist direct access to the deepest, most vulnerable parts of the human brain, the parts that were there already when we were small children. It's there that stories can have a profound, even life-changing impact. There's nothing more serious than fantasy. When it's well executed, it touches nerves that no other genre touches. You know, that are primary in, in our fabric because they were installed there in our childhood. Yeah. And, and, and it, it transforms us in a way that nothing else does. What we were talking about genre, the funny thing, as the years went by or has, have gone by, I realized that what attracted me to horror was not what makes horror work commercially. I, I, what attracted me to horror was its kinship with fairy tales, for example. And I think that Gilliam understands that at the core, Gilliam or Roald Dahl, mm -hmm. right. both, both understand that at the core of a fairy tale or a children's fable, there needs to exist a complete and merciless brutality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because kids go, yeah, it's real. He knows. They get the stake. Or she knows, you know, whoever is the narrator. But, but they, get, they get it. I vividly remember the moment at which Twin Peaks became that for me, more than just a quirky murder mystery that I was enjoying well enough. At the end of episode 3, Cooper goes to sleep and has a dream that opens the series up to the mythical and the supernatural, the truly mysterious. It's easy to forget just how grounded this first season of the show is when compared to the places that the story would travel to in season two and beyond. And so it's also easy to forget just how much impact this sequence had. Cooper and the audience are introduced to the Black Lodge, or the Red Room, an eerie liminal space outside of the regular confines of time and place in which mysterious figures deliver cryptic clues. All of a sudden, this isn't just a murder mystery. It's something else entirely. Sometimes ideas, like men, jump up and say, hello? They introduce themselves, these ideas, with words. Are they words? These ideas speak so strangely. All that we see in this world is based on someone's ideas. Some ideas are destructive, some are constructive. Some ideas can arrive in the form of a dream. I can say it again. Some ideas arrive in the form of a dream. When we last parted ways with Lynch in this narrative, the year was 1986, and Blue Velvet had just been released to widespread critical acclaim, as well as plenty of vocal outrage. His agent at the time, Tony Krantz, had a hunch that Lynch was about to become incredibly famous were he given the right project, and he also had a hunch that the structure of episodic television would be a great match with Lynch's emerging aesthetic and artistic voice. As covered in our Fire Walk With Me episode, it's during this time that Lynch met Mark Frost, a writer most well known at the time for his role as a senior writer on Hill Street Blues. When Krantz heard about these two meeting and collaborating on ideas, his dream of a David Lynch-directed television show ignited, and he tried to convince them to pull the trigger. 
they first came up with an idea for a show called The Lemurians, about the content of Lemuria, a place where evil prevailed. The continent disappeared into the ocean, leaving very few survivors, and the show was about FBI agents with Giga counters who search out and kill the remaining Lemurians. It was taken to Brandon Tartikoff, who was head of NBC at the time, who actually ordered it as a film, but Lynch only wanted to do it as a television show. So even though the Lemurians got sold to NBC, it died in the water. By the time Lynch and Frost pitched what would eventually be called Twin Peaks to ABC, the writer's strike of 1988 was about to kick in, and by the time ABC got back to them after the strike had ended almost a year later to tell them that they were interested, Lynch and Frost had largely forgotten most of the things that they had pitched to ABC in the first place. The one image that endured and returned again as they began working on a pilot script was that of a dead body washing up on the shore of a lake wrapped in plastic. They knew that it would be a serial about the murder of a homecoming queen, and away they went. The rest is history. In April of 1990, the pilot episode aired to over 34 million people. Twin Peaks was a phenomenon, and the question on everybody's lips in the early 1990s was who killed Laura Palmer? Among the many things that made Twin Peaks such a huge success was its casting, Twin Peaks is known for its vast ensemble of weird and wacky characters, and for Lynch, it's all in the casting. He's incredibly intuitive, and for one reason or another, he will feel a connection with an individual in the casting process and know how to place that person in the piece. Michael J. Anderson, the man from another place who dances and delivers clues to Cooper in eerie reverse dialogue, is someone that Lynch met in 1987 at the Manhattan nightclub Magoo's. He was dressed in gold and pulling a wagon at the time for some reason, and Lynch immediately envisioned him as Ronnie Rocket, Lynch's famous unproduced film. Deputy Andy is played by Harry Goaz, who happened to be driving a car that Lynch hired to take him to a tribute to Roy Orbison. Major Armick, who plays Shelley the waitress at the diner, was running late the afternoon that she was slated to meet about the show, and she didn't arrive at the meeting until 11 o'clock in the evening. To her surprise, Lynch had waited for her, and gave her the role. Wendy Roby was cast as Nadine Hurley after one conversation with Lynch and Frost. Ray Wise effortlessly slid into the coexistent tragedy and slime of Leland Palmer. The show features a number of actors who were, at the time, veterans who hadn't been seen on screen in a while. Russ Tamblin as Dr. Jacoby, Piper Laurie as Catherine Martell, Peggy Lipton as Norma Jennings, Richard Bamer as Ben Horn, and Michael Ontkeen as Sheriff Harry Truman were among just some of these names. But for me, the two most important castings in the series are Kyle MacLachlan as Special Agent Dale Cooper and Cheryl Lee as both Laura Palmer and her identical cousin, Maddie. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day. Weatherman said rain. You could get paid that kind of money for being wrong 60% of the time and be working. And mileage is 79,345. Gauge is on reserve. Riding on fumes here. I got to tank up when I get into town. Remind me to tell you how much that is. Lunch was... Uh, $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2 near Lewis Fork. That was a tuna fish sandwich on whole wheat, slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. Damn good food. Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. Okay. Looks like I'll be meeting up with the uh, Sheriff Harry S. Truman. Shouldn't be too hard to remember that. He'll be at the Calhoun Memorial Hospital. I guess we're going to go up to intensive care and take a look at that girl that crawled down the railroad tracks off the mountain. When I'm finished here, I'll be checking into a motel. I'm sure the sheriff will be able to recommend a clean place, reasonably priced. That's what I need. A clean place, reasonably priced. Oh, Diane, I almost forgot. Got to find out what kind of trees these are. Really... Lynch has said that McLaughlin was born to play the role of Cooper and he delivers a pitch-perfect performance as a kind of innocent sage who marvels at the wonders of the world while attempting to understand its darkest mysteries. 
It's here in Twin Peaks that we first see McLaughlin's knack for comic timing, and from the very first moment he appears on screen, he's charismatic, charming, and hilariously enthusiastic as Special Agent Dale Cooper. So the role of Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks, um, probably the most important in my career to date, <laughs> probably for the entire career. It was one of those things when you start out to, to do it and you, you're making a pilot and there were no real expectations um, that we would go further. It was going to be a, a two-hour movie of the week if it didn't get picked up as a pilot. ABC decided that they liked it enough that they were going to ask us to do seven more. So they all kind of came out at once and suddenly <laughs> everything shifted and there was an explosion and we were like right at the top of this incredible wave. Um, it was pretty amazing. Coop is, um, he's like the old-time lawman. I kind of found him as we as we filmed the pilot, because I wasn't exactly sure who he was. He was on the page, you know, damn good coffee and hot. That was absolutely written like that. And I, and I remember reading damn good coffee and it was dot, dot, dot and hot. And I was like, oh, how am I gonna do this? And so I just sort of launched into it. And I had this sort of crazy over the top, enthusiastic, boyish kind of quality that seemed to work with the character. This is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. Man, that hits the spot. <laughs> damn good coffee. And hot. Of course, because I had David uh, as a director, he was able to help steer me in certain situations and moments. We were doing a scene where I'm interrogating uh, Dana Ashbrook's character, Bobby Briggs. He gets really angry and he says, I don't know, no, no, no. And I remember one of my takes, I got really angry back at him and David came over and said, nah, let's try something different. And I said, okay. And so he gets really angry, really angry. And I sit back and I sort of smile. And then I turn to Michael Onkeen and I smile at Michael. And then I turn back to him and I'm like, Bobby, it's like this. What difference does it make? I didn't. Kill her! Bobby, here's how this works. We ask the questions, and you answer the questions that we ask. It was a choice that I hadn't really considered, but it was perfect. You know, David gave me that, um, gave me that little jewel, and, and I said, ah, very good. So I was, I was learning as I went along as an actor, you know, and David was a a master teacher. But as the log lady so eloquently pointed out at the beginning of this episode, Laura is the one. Laura is the one that leads to the many. And Cheryl Lee's casting as Laura Palmer is, for me, the most crucial piece of casting in the whole series, in spite of the fact that she initially plays not much more than a corpse, appearing only in videotapes and in Cooper's eerie dream in the Black Lodge. Lynch was so impressed with Lee that he wrote her back into the series in the form of Laura's cousin, Maddie Ferguson. Lynch would of course then return with Cheryl Lee to the character of Laura Palmer in full a few years later for the prequel film Fire Walk With Me, but Laura's presence in this first season of the show is enigmatic, mysterious, tragic and magnetic, and her presence is felt in every single scene. She is the mystery at the heart of the show, not just the mystery of her killer, but the mystery at the heart of who she was. Everybody loved her. Everyone had a story about how her kindness and her goodness had touched them in their lives at some point or another. And yet the more that Cooper investigates, the more he discovers that Laura was a walking contradiction. The more he investigates, the more Laura is revealed as a tragic martyr of goodness and kindness, who perhaps was even aware of her own fate on some level. Like I've said a number of times before on this show, television has never really grabbed me the same way that film does, and there are a number of reasons for that. But one reason, perhaps, is the way that the inherent structure of episodic television affects the momentum of the piece, both in a narrative sense and in a thematic and emotional sense. This is something that Lynch was also profoundly aware of at the end of the 1980s, moving into the 1990s. Emotional stakes and narrative consequences were almost always wiped clean each week on television. Somebody's mum dies? No worries, 
By next week's episode, they've moved on and have another important narrative hurdle to jump. Someone gets murdered? Don't worry about them. They were just fodder for this week's investigation. There'll be another one next week. Especially at the time, narrative choices in television rarely had any lasting effects on the characters and therefore never had any particularly lasting effect on its viewers. At least, that's what Lynch and Frost thought. They approached Twin Peaks, wanting the death of Laura Palmer to mean something. Not just in her death, but in the way that her death rippled through the population of the town, shaking loose all sorts of mysteries, contradictions, conflicts and surprises. Take the pilot episode. The scene in which both Sarah and Leland Palmer discover that their daughter is dead is heartbreaking, but it doesn't cut away. This death hurts, and it will continue to hurt throughout the whole series. There is a sadness in this world, for we are ignorant of many things. Yes, we are ignorant of many beautiful things. Things like the truth. So sadness in our ignorance is very real. The tears are real. What is this thing called a tear? There are even tiny ducks, tear ducks, to produce these tears should the sadness occur. Then the day when the sadness comes, then we ask, will this sadness which makes me cry Will this sadness that makes me cry my heart out, will it ever end? The answer, of course, is yes. One day the sadness will end. Beyond Twin Peaks just being a continuing story, something that Lynch was obviously not able to achieve in the world of feature filmmaking, it's also a story that allows trauma and grief to resonate properly. Many cite Twin Peaks as being incredibly influential for television moving forwards into the 21st century for this reason. It pioneered the format of television as something that allowed the space and runtime for continuing mysteries and long-form storytelling. Many cite Twin Peaks as being incredibly influential for television moving forwards into the 21st century for this reason. It pioneered the format of television as something that allowed the space and runtime for continuing mysteries and long-form storytelling, as opposed to the serialised, story-of-the-week rut that television had found itself in in the late 1980s. There are many other people who can speak to this much more authoritatively than I, however, and I suggest you go and listen to them on the subject. But what it did mean for Lynch and his filmmaking, however, was that he was able to let character arcs, story beats, and narrative implications play out over much longer stretches of time, all the while introducing primetime television audiences to a language of television that was much more in line with the experimental and artistically acerbic vision that Lynch had been bringing to cinema screens. Despite the fact that a lot of American television shows at the time took their name from a place specific to the series, most had little to no sense of place. This was another area in which Twin Peaks bucked the trend. From its very inception in the early writing phases, the town of Twin Peaks was one surrounded by woods. Lynch speaks about this in Lynch on Lynch, saying, For as long as anyone can remember, woods have been mysterious places. So they were a character in my mind, and then other characters came to our minds. And as you start peopling this place, one thing leads to another, and somewhere along the line you have a certain type of community. And because of the way characters are, you have indications of what they might do, and how they would get into trouble, and how their pasts could come back to haunt them. And so you have many things to work with. There are things about the Northwest that are unique. And what always amazes me is how that place translates all around the world. There was something about it that people understood and appreciated. French anthropologist Marc Auger introduced a distinction between what he calls places and non-places in his book Non-Places, Introduction to an Anthropology of Supermodernity. He identifies new anthropological spaces that have been created in the modern world in which one can be anonymous and that do not hold enough significance to be regarded as places in the true anthropological definition. Think of hotel corridors, shopping malls, airports, train stations. In a strictly subjective sense, these places are all transitory, strictly surface, and without any reason to drop roots, and are, according to Auger, a symptom of a new type of modernity that is developing faster than we are able to keep up with. 
The town of Twin Peaks is, to me, the antithesis of this. It is the very definition of a place that you can drop roots into. A place that you can spend 40 minutes in with Special Agent Dale Cooper each week and have a real, tangible sense that there is a rich history to this place and an abundance of people, all with complex, troubling and textured stories to tell. The eerie red room, however, becomes an almost literal representation of this concept of the non-place. As we continue through the narrative and lore of Twin Peaks in future episodes, especially with 2017's The Return, we'll go into much more depth about what the Red Room literally is within the logic and reality of the show. But from what we see just in this first series, in episode 3, it stands in direct contrast to the town of Twin Peaks. There is a real sense that this place, whether or not it actually exists or is just a part of Cooper's dream, exists outside of our own understanding of time and space. Synonymous with the Red Room is Michael J. Anderson as the man from another place. This sequence is a shock the first time that it appears in a murder mystery set in a logging town. Like his answers to a lot of questions about his work, Lynch's answer to Chris Rodley's question about the origin of the Red Room in Lynch on Lynch is almost as enigmatic as the Red Room itself. I met Mike in 1987, one of the many times I was thinking about gearing up for Ronnie Rocket. I'd seen a short of him and knew that he'd be perfect for the character of Ronnie Rocket. I met him at Magoo's in downtown New York City and he was wearing all gold. Gold shoes, gold pants, gold jacket. And he was pulling a wagon. As is so often the case, Ronnie Rocket didn't happen. So now, a few years later, I'm finishing up the plot for Twin Peaks. We were editing the alternate ending, foreign version, over at some editing rooms in CFI Laboratory in LA, working with the alternative footage that we'd shot up in Seattle. It wasn't completely coming together in a satisfactory way, and one night, at about 6.37pm in the evening, I remember it was very warm. Dwayne Dunham and his assistant, Brian Burden, and I were leaving for the day. We were out in the parking lot, and I was leaning against a car. The front of me was leaning against this very warm car. My hands were on the roof, and the metal was very hot. The red room scene leapt into my mind. Little Mike was there, and he was speaking backwards. I told Dwayne that I had an idea that I thought that he would like very much, but that I couldn't talk about it, and for the rest of the night, I thought only about the Red Room. The implications that this scene opened up for viewers seeing this show for the first time is exactly the sort of effect that Lynch wants his cinema to have. A sense of mystery and unresolved tension that isn't even necessarily meant to be solved. By introducing the mystical and the occult into a story that was already compelling and bizarre, Twin Peaks suddenly morphed and elevated to something incredibly special. It is in this non-place that the true mysteries of Twin Peaks lie dormant still to this day, and it's in this non-place that Cooper attempts to sort through the clues and information that he's begun to gather in his time in Twin Peaks. Is it actually just a dream, or is the Red Room a real place that he travelled to in his dream? At this point in the story, these distinctions don't even matter, because all of a sudden, the esoteric and the surreal is of equal importance to the plot as the grounded murder mystery, and the implications and possibilities that that opens up is endless. Key to a murder mystery is a villain, and the closest thing that Twin Peaks had to a villain in these early days was that of Bob, played by Frank Silver. The story of Frank's inclusion in the show speaks to an element of Lynch's approach to creativity that we see becoming more and more in the forefront of his films as he progresses throughout his career. While shooting the pilot, they're shooting a scene in Laura Palmer's bedroom. Frank Silver is a set dresser on the pilot, and Frank is in Laura's bedroom doing his thing, preparing the set for the shoot. While he's moving furniture around, he moves a chest of drawers in front of the door, leaving Frank in the room with everyone else outside. Someone jokingly calls out to Frank, warning him not to lock himself in the room. And Lynch overhears this, and all of a sudden, he has an idea. He asks Frank, are you an actor? And he replies, yes. And Lynch tells him that he's going to be in the pilot. At this point in the shoot, they're in Laura's room for a slow panning shot around the room to be used as Sarah Palmer, thinking back to that moment later that night. They shoot two regular pans, after which Lynch tells Frank Silver to crouch down behind the bed, put his hands on the bars, and freeze. Don't move, don't blink, just look at this mark. 
They shoot the pan exactly the same as they had the two previous times, only this time with Frank Silver hiding in plain sight, not knowing what it was going to be leading towards, or even if it was going to get used in the final edit. Later that night, they're shooting downstairs in the living room of the Palmer household, and the great Grace Zabriskie is sitting on the couch as Sarah Palmer, smoking, thinking about Laura. She's in a state of terrible sadness, tormented by the murder of her daughter. At this point, they have already shot the heart necklace being found under the rock, and Zabriskie was to bolt upright and scream at this revelation, the camera whipping up to capture her scream. Thinking that his work for the day is done after capturing the shot, Lynch begins to pack up, but the operator speaks up and tells him to stop, that they need to shoot the scene again. When Lynch asks why, the operator simply says that there was a crew member reflected in a mirror. Lynch tells everyone to stay completely still where they're standing, and walks over to the camera and looks through the eyepiece. Looking through, he sees Frank Silver reflected in the bottom of the old mirror in the living room. And so Killer Bob was born. Bob usually appears in well-lit spaces, the ending of the international pilot aside, evoking the same kind of uncanny chills as something like Jack Clayton's The Innocents, when the governess appears across the lake in bright sunshine, or Kubrick's The Shining, placing the two twins in the middle of a well-lit corridor. It's almost as if, because it's daylight, we tell ourselves that we are safe, and that nothing scary can happen without shadows and darkness to shroud it. And yet there Bob is, entirely present in Laura's well-lit bedroom, and it's terrifying. While evil certainly is present in Lynch's previous work up until this point, Frank Booth being the most recent representative in Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks is the first time that Lynch introduces evil as being not from this world. It's from beyond. It's from whatever world the Red Room is a window into. When asked exactly who or what Bob is, Lynch simply says, an abstraction with a human form. An abstraction of what exactly? The evil that men do? But that doesn't exactly fit with this idea of evil coming from beyond our realm of existence. Regardless, it's clear that there is much more on the brain of Twin Peaks than simply a murder mystery. There are characters who are abstractions of ideas in human form, and the reality of dreams holds just as much weight as the physical world. Exactly what Bob represents is something that we will continue to revisit as we continue along this Twin Peaks journey in future episodes, but as there is no closure to be found surrounding Bob in Season 1, we will leave that particular mystery box closed for now. Something that's present alongside this dormant external evil in Twin Peaks is a certain uncanniness that has become synonymous with Lynch. In particular, something that Lynch focuses on from the very beginning of Twin Peaks is looking at normal, everyday objects and allowing a dimension of the macabre to creep in. This is something Blue Velvet famously saw Lynch begin to explore, and here on Twin Peaks that theme is afforded the time to play out in full. In fact, this is largely the heart of Twin Peaks, peeling away the shiny surface of the American dream frozen in the amber of the 1950s and exposing the dark, sinister things crawling just beneath the surface. We can see that literally playing out in so many places on the show, where the shiny veneer of a traditional soap opera or episodic police procedural is cracked open to reveal real darkness. Why does footage of wind blowing through the woods feel mysterious and ominous? Or a simple set of traffic lights swaying in the night breeze? Or a static shot on a ceiling fan in Laura Palmer's room? Chris Rodley asks this question in Lynch on Lynch, in which he responds, The intersection of Sparkwood and 21 was where Laura last saw James, or where James last saw Laura. And these traffic lights are now there. Snow and different temperatures mean that they have to be fluid, so they blow in the wind. And these traffic lights became kind of important. They were used again when Cooper says all of these murders took place at night. So when you see this red light, or a light turning to red, and it's moving, it gives you a feeling. And then it becomes like the fan in the hall outside Laura's room. It makes you wonder. And again, the perfect central example of this duality the one that leads to the many, is Laura Palmer. On the surface, she was the homecoming queen, daughter of two loving parents, best friend of Donna, 
But the more Cooper explores her life, the more he realises that she was a deeply troubled individual. She was using drugs and coercing Bobby Briggs into entering the world of drug dealing. She was selling her body at one-eyed jacks. And of course, she was haunted by the constant knowledge and threat of her ongoing abuse. Because let's not forget, the story of Twin Peaks is dark. Sure, it's quirky and funny. Andy and Lucy are hilarious together. Nadine's obsession with the silent drape runners is absurd. And the log lady is bizarre. Cooper's boyish enthusiasm and left-of-centre investigative techniques. Albert's disdain for the whole town. Pete Martell's coffee gaffe. Fellas, don't drink that coffee. You'd never guess. There was a fish in the percolator. Sorry. It is a funny show, but at the heart of the show is a traumatic and deeply upsetting reality. The reality of abuse. This goes part of the way to helping me understand why Lynch, in particular, never had any real interest in revealing Laura's killer. As long as that mystery stayed intact, Laura's spectre remained an ever-present background noise, filling each scene with depth, resonance, and extra weight. Laura's abuse wasn't just a disposable plot point to get Cooper into Twin Peaks. It's the point of the whole show. It's the reason Lynch came back to Twin Peaks with Fire Walk With Me after season two came to a close. And it's the reason that The Return works as a revival where so many other revivals fall completely flat before they've even started. There's a truth to Twin Peaks and an honesty. It says trauma and violence have lasting consequences, not just on the immediate victim, but also on the people around them. By the time Cooper is shot by the masked figure in the final moments of this season, we have only just scratched the surface on how deeply Laura's life and death affected and changed the lives of those around her. The longer Laura's mystery was kept alive, the longer her story was allowed to resonate. As with all of Lynch's work, music is central to the world-building of Twin Peaks. By this point in his career, his creative partnership with the late Angelo Badalamenti was bubbling along, and Badalamenti's work on Twin Peaks is, for my money, his most memorable and iconic. We've heard this clip before in this show, but here it is again to illustrate the importance, not just of the music in Twin Peaks, but also that key creative relationship between David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti. This is the keyboard that all the major themes were created for Twin Peaks. It's an old Fender Rhodes and um, kind of beat up. And David would sit right over here, right to the right of me. And we would put a little cassette just about over here on this keyboard, just keep it in record and just keep it playing. David would sit here and I'd say, well, what do you see, David? What is, just talk to me. And David would say, okay, Angelo, we're in a dark woods now. And there's a soft wind blowing through some sycamore trees. And uh, there's there's a moon out and there's some animal sounds in the background. and, And you can hear the hoot of an owl. And you're in the dark woods, you know, just, just get me into that beautiful darkness with the soft wind and I started playing and David would say Angelo that's great I love that that's a good mood but can you play it slower and I'd say slower David okay and I'd go That's it. That's a good tempo. Just keep it going slow like that. Just keep that going for a while. 
and in David's mind, you can, you can just see that he was visualizing the description that he envisioned. Then he would say, okay, Angelo, now we got to make a change because from behind a tree in the back of the woods, there's this very lonely girl. Her name is Laura Palmer. And it's very sad, but get something that matches her. And, and, I, and I just segued into this. And he'd say, oh, that's it. It's very beautiful. I could see her. And she's walking towards the camera, and she's coming closer. Just keep building it. Just keep building it. And she's getting close. Now reach some kind of climax. And I would go, and he said, oh, that's it. Oh, that's so beautiful. Angelo, oh, that's tearing my heart out. I love that. Just keep that going. Now she's starting to leave. So fall down. Keep falling. Keep falling. Now go back into the dark woods. That's it. Keep going. Just keep it going. Very quiet and mysterious. got up and gave me a big hug. He said, Angelo, that's Twin Peaks. I said, okay, David, I'll go home and I'll work on it. He said, Angelo, don't do a thing and don't change a signal note. I see Twin Peaks. And that's how it was done. The music plays a huge role in keeping the tone of the show on a razor's edge, ready to sidestep at any moment. At one moment, the score can be whimsical and light-hearted. You know that any time you hear a double bass and a brushed kit, that you're probably about to see some wacky comedy shenanigans. But then the next scene, we can be treated to Laura Palmer's theme, a deeply melancholy piece usually reserved for the big emotional soap opera moments, or Audrey's dance, a composition filled with yearning and sensuality. As much as Lynch and Frost's fingerprints are all over Twin Peaks, Badalamenti's music, complemented by Julie Cruz's voice, cannot be undervalued. As somebody who re-watches this show about once a year, there have been times at which my complete fascination with Twin Peaks ever so slightly waned, but invariably this is always met with another strand of mystery that I hadn't picked up on before, or another discovery that would unlock even further obsession. Most recently, I've been thinking a lot about this show as being a meta-exploration into the very nature of television. If we consider David Lynch's obsession with electricity, dating all the way back to Eraserhead and the unproduced Ronnie Rocket, and its prominence in Twin Peaks as a suggested medium through which the spirits of the Lodge traverse between the two worlds, we can then begin to ask, why? Is electricity just something convenient that Lynch was fascinated with and decided to use? Or is there something more going on? Let's have a look at Cooper's dream again through the lens of it potentially being a meta-commentary on television itself. There are so many different threads that we could pull on, but I want to ask you to consider one line in particular. Why read from the birds sing a freshly song? And there's always music in the air. Where is there always music in the air? On television. Given the man from another place's short stature and Lynch's overall opinion of television compared to cinema, could we view this character as another abstraction with a human form? Perhaps a representation of the small screen? Does the fact that the red curtains in the red room resemble those commonly seen in the wings to the side of a stage, or the fact that the zigzag lines on the floor resemble radio waves, have any bearing on this theory? 
These are all certainly interesting things to consider, and this is a thread that I will pick up in more detail in future Twin Peaks episodes, particularly when we arrive at the return. So I encourage you to let this idea marinate if you haven't already considered it. Let it sit on the brain, maybe give the show another rewatch, and see what this angle teases out for you. I'll leave that particular angle there, other than to ask the question of what a television show would look like if the characters were on some level aware of the fact that they were on a television show. If I've already lost you with this line of reasoning, perhaps consider the fact that the characters on the show watch a soap opera parody called Invitation to Love that invariably mirrors the events of the story. To bring this contemplation of Twin Peaks to a close, I want to once again draw your attention to the prominence of dreams, not just in Twin Peaks, but in Lynch's work in general. Even when they aren't strictly talking about dreams in an explicit sense, characters in Twin Peaks constantly refer to their dreams or nightmares. Even in its very construction as a sleepy lumber town, the town of Twin Peaks itself can serve as a metaphor for a dream. Laura's death sparks the dream, brings the detective into the dream, and fuels the mystery. Central to this exploration into Twin Peaks will be a very simple question about the dream. We're like the dreamer. Dreams, and then lives inside the dream. And then she said... In a town like Twin Peaks, where dreams seem to be perpetuated by forces that appear to be able to influence the waking world, who is to say that the things that happen in our dreams aren't of just as much consequence as those that happen while we are awake? That's damn fine coffee you got here in Twin Peaks. And damn good cherry pie. Brilliant! <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Thanks for listening. As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever it is that you're catching it, and to share it with a friend. The best way to support this show and get it in front of more sets of eyes is simply by leaving a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch and let me know your thoughts on Twin Peaks or anything else we've covered on this show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people that love films. My first short story collection, called Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link for that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to ACAST for hosting this podcast. Major sources for this episode were Room to Dream by Christine McKenna and David Lynch, and Lynch on Lynch, edited by Chris Rodley. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast. Thank you.